Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. Too often, Black women are a mere afterthought in conversations around wellness, but not in this space. On this podcast, the dialogue is always centered around women like you. Welcome to the podcast, but more importantly, welcome to the tribe. Be well, sis. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Be Well Sis podcast. I am your host, Cassandra Dunbar. All right, sis, I'm not even going to ask you how you are because, baby, I already know. So let's get rid of some of that tension. Take a second to relax your shoulders, unclench your jaw, relax your facial muscles, relax your hands, straighten up that spine, and take a deep cleansing breath. Okay. Okay. So now that we've got that done and hopefully you're feeling a little bit better, <laughs> let's go ahead and let's talk. Let's talk about it. Um, This year has been a year of collective grief among other things. So if we think about it, we think about how it started off in January with the tragedy that ended the lives of Kobe Bryant, his daughter, as well as the other people who were on the helicopter. And something about that tragedy really moved millions of us very deeply. Even those of us who aren't really sports fans like that. Um, I don't know why, but there was something about that moment that brought us all together in a in a deep way. So that was January. And then by the springtime, we were all in lockdown due to the coronavirus. The virus had reached our borders, reached our shores, and and people were getting ill because of it and were subsequently dying. Then by June, we are all out in the streets protesting and marching um screaming that our lives matter because of the numerous lives of black men and women who were lost at the hands of law enforcement and have become memorialized by hashtags so we're collectively mourning that and now we're we're in the end of the year and as I speak to you, we don't have the results of the election in. And we're still just mourning because after all that's happened in the past four years, how is it possible that this race is this close? For nothing else, I thought that this summer's events were, were an eye-opener to people who maybe have been sheltered from from what black and brown people go through. People were reading and listening and learning and hashtag Black Lives Matter all over their Instagram feeds and whew, 
and and you're shouting at us to go vote as we neared the election time. Who were you voting for? Like, what did you learn exactly? But whatever. I digress. The fact is that we've spent a year as a collective, as a greater collective, not just the Black community or the Brown community, but as a nation, um, in mourning. So typically when we think of grief, we think about the two-week bereavement period that we're hopefully afforded through work um, to work out our feelings after a loved one passes, right? For whatever reason, we're conditioned to think that grief is just a short process with a clear endpoint that you just mourn for some time and then just move on. But in reality, grief looks different for different people. It takes time and it certainly isn't linear. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross famously describes the five stages of grief. They are one, denial. Second is anger. The third is bargaining. The fourth is depression. And then the fifth and final stage is acceptance. So we all know and can accept this when we lose someone to death, but what about the loss of other things and other major life and emotional events, such as the end of a relationship or divorce, the loss of a missed career opportunity, the mourning of a childhood you never had, or even mourning the state of our nation and the state of our world at large. So when we talk about grief, what exactly is grief? Grief is the mental or emotional suffering or distress caused by loss or regret. So on this episode, we explore grief beyond how we normally think about it by delving into a conversation with Brisha Wade. Brisha Wade holds a bachelor's in comparative studies in race and ethnicity from Stanford University and a master's in religious studies from the University of Chicago. She also completed the Upaya Zen Center's two-year Buddhist chaplaincy program. She served as a hospice and palliative care end-of-life caregiver in L.A. County, and over the past five years, she has supported people through grief and transitions as a birth doula and a lay-ordained Buddhist chaplain working in jails, on the mother-baby units of hospitals, and in people's homes. Wade uses her practice as an end-of-life caregiver to encourage those who are not facing illness, death, or dying to be open to what grief can teach them about relationship, life, failure, sex, and desire. She wishes to expand the world's conception of grief beyond concrete loss and call attention to the numerous ways our experiences of grief impact the way we misunderstand power, craft self-image, approach boundaries, conflict, and accountability. I am so grateful that I have the opportunity to have this conversation with her. So you're in for an eye-opening conversation so thank you so much for joining. I'm so glad you're here. Be well, sis. All right, so let's just go ahead and hop on into it. So we're talking about grief today. So I have somebody on here who has a really diverse um, work history. Um, so you've worked as a doula as well as an end-of-life caregiver. So both ends of the spectrum of the life cycle, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so before we get into grief, I'm really interested and curious as to how did you, like, how did your, take me on the journey with you of your career trajectory? Oh, girl, you ready? 
I'm ready. All over the place. All right. <laughs> so, um, so when I finished undergrad, um, I knew I wanted to be a writer because I um, was very interested in the human experience and exploring my own experience. Um, but obviously, writers don't get paid very much. So um, <laughs> I actually ended up going back home, um, you know, to, to North Carolina, South Carolina and learning to code. And, you know, I was good at it. I had an offer coming out of this coding boot camp. Um, even so, you know, even with the the promise of job security and more money, I missed working with people in meaningful ways. Um, so I I was reading, I think, Black Sexual Politics. Um, and for some reason, I, I started thinking about birth. Um, and I found a, a doula workshop in Asheville, North Carolina, um, the upcoming weekend. And I made a last minute decision to go, um, you know, to see what it was about. <clears throat> so... I started volunteering um, in South Carolina uh, as a birth uh, companion, birth doula uh, for low income moms. And I remember having an experience in which um, the child was expected to be born healthy. Um, and I'd work with the parents, you know, up until, uh, up until labor and they were expecting a live baby boy. And unfortunately, um, he came out with the cord wrapped around his neck and he didn't make it. Um, so of course that experience really impacted me profoundly. And I started becoming more attentive to grief, the grief I was feeling from that experience and the grief I was carrying um, into other experiences, as well as um, just becoming more attentive to grief. Um, I was noticing on the journeys of expectant parents who hadn't had those experiences and were still in the expecting phase where they're, you know, buying new clothes, buying uh, the crib, getting the room ready, you know, even though they are expecting this wonderful moment and they haven't had anything concretely happen, um, they haven't experienced the concrete loss of their child or anyone near them, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, at the time, be, at, at that time. Um, there's something about that transition and noticing a, the potential of loss, the potential of what can go wrong, and B, um, the other losses, you know, even as you're welcoming something as new as, and exciting as a baby, you know, when you're expecting and wanting this baby, um, the loss of your freedom, the loss of the way you used to live your life, um, maybe the loss of certain relationships because your energy will be focused on this child. Um, so from there, I ended up applying to Divinity School at U Chicago, and that was also an accident. Um, I was in the park walking, trying to figure out what journey made the most sense for me. You know, how could I continue relating to people in very in meaningful ways, um, and write um, and, and share stories? Uh, since you know, coding just wasn't doing it for me, just sitting in front of a computer. This was not, that was not it. Um, and I ended up calling the director of the Divinity School and, you know, she was awesome. I was six months late. Uh, we had a conversation and she liked my thought process. So she opened the application up um, and, you know, she thought that they wouldn't have any funding, um, but I ended up getting in and uh, they covered about 80% of my tuition. So I was off to Chicago. Wow. wow. What is for you is for you. Wow. Girl, yeah, it was, it was really amazing. I, and I didn't even know it was such a great program, you know, um, mm-hmm. 
I knew nothing. <laughs> I just, wow. I was just, you know, in a park. I did a Google search and I said, you know, why not? Um, and she thought that I would be a good chaplain, actually. I didn't know what chaplaincy or end of life caregiving really was. Um, but she and a few mentors um, that I encountered in Divinity School thought that this would be a good path for me. Um, so I ended up taking something called clinical pastoral education, um, which is basically, you know, required for, um, board certification as a, as an end of life caregiver chaplain in the medical system. And I ended up working on a NICU, um, specifically with parents who had, who were losing, you know, their um, children, um, because a hospital I served had a high risk pregnancy clinic. Um, so yeah, I mean, it really came full circle. Um, I also became very attentive to, um, the other ways that we experience grief in our day-to-day lives, like not just concrete death, but when I was thinking about experiences that, um, are meaningful to people, it's, you know, life or, birth, life, and in that, that there's sex and money and death and there's grief related to all of it. Mm. Um, and having, you know, worked with people on the NICU um, and then, you know, I got involved in hospice, hospice chaplaincy a bit later. All of those things um, continuously come up. Um, so one thing that I saw in your uh, bio that really um, stuck out to me was that you mentioned how, like you just said, grief um, affects all of those aspects of our lives. So when we think of grief, we, I typically think about, you know, somebody has come to the end of their life and then the grief is what the people who survive, um, have to deal with. So how does grief show up in the different aspects of our lives? Like you said, like the sex, the, the money, career, all that good stuff. Um, so an example, uh, with a, thank you for that question. And thank you for asking uh, specifically about sex and <laughs> career, because that makes the transition super easy. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, a lot of my friends are very fortunate and very successful. Um, and I remember one evening after working on the NICU, going out to um, dinner with my partner and one of our friends who, you know, she had like a six figure job. Yeah, she has an awesome family. Um, she went to great schools. Like her life was pretty sweet. Right. Um, but here we are talking over dinner and she is anxious about uh, things at work. You know, she's anxious about losing the very things she already has in this moment, even though looking at her life on the surface, she hasn't lost very much like her. She she's she was in her mid 20s and her life trajectory had gone up. Mm-hmm. And that's something I noticed, you know, with people in relationships as well. You know, you can be in a beautiful relationship in which someone loves you and they support you. Um, and, and then there's that anxiety and there's that underlying fear of of losing this thing that you are holding and experiencing in this very moment. Um, and noticing this while I was, you know, working with folks at the end of their lives, um, I realized that a lot of grief that we experience, uh, that we don't realize that we're experiencing or that we don't realize is grief has to do with the reality of impermanence and recognizing that we absolutely 
will lose the the things that we love, even if we haven't lost them, even if we haven't lost very much already. You know, it's just mm-hmm. something that is innate to the human experience yeah. and is constantly yeah. in the back um, of our mind. When you're speaking, it makes me think about, I think, what we're collectively dealing with as a nation, maybe as as the world right now, um, with the pandemic. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of our underlying uneasiness might be because we're collectively grieving not only people that have actually um, died to COVID, but also just the uncertainty. Would you agree? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So what... I mean, how do we healthily manage through all of this? <laughs> now, that's a question. Um... Because it sounds like um, what you were describing is just like we have these things. Like, for example, your friend with the the awesome career. Like, uh-huh. she has her career. Like, she has things. She's doing well. But just the the fear of what if I lose all of this? I mean. Is there a way we can navigate? You know, honestly, there isn't an easy answer. Um, when when I think about my friend who is grieving the if, you know, and all of us who are grieving the ifs, for me, when I've gone through tremendous grief in my personal life, um, and when I've sat with others who are grieving, it's been very important to shift the if to a will. Um, mm-hmm. So in that, and what I mean by that is, you know, acceptance that a lot of the things that I do fear losing and that I do fear happening, um, you know, aside from the the wild things when my mind really gets gets wandering and I'm anxious, like, will I get buried alive tomorrow? Okay. Probably not going to happen, but you know, <laughs> the reasonable uh, fears like, will I lose my mom? Will I lose my grandmother? Um, will I have this job 10 years from now? You know, everything that I care about, I absolutely will lose at some point. There, There is no if, ands, or buts about it. How it'll happen, I don't know. Could happen when I'm 70, could happen five years from now. And when I move through life with that acceptance instead of trying to constantly trying to avoid it. It allows me to live more fully in the moment. That makes sense. The The acceptance piece is, it sounds simple, but that is complex. Yeah. You know, when you said that everything that you love, you will absolutely lose at one point. That is true for all of us. And that gave me like a, a lump in my throat. <laughs> yeah. No, it gives you know? me a lump in my throat sometimes. So. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Um, I mean, the act, the exercise of, of acceptance is is tough. And, yeah. and you know, just going back a little bit, I think we've said the word grief like at least 10 times by now. What is the difference between grief, fear, and sadness? I think, you know, from just speaking from my personal experience, they tend to be deeply um, connected. Uh, Sadness for me is more of a fleeting emotion. 
that may be accompanied by grief, but grief doesn't always look like sadness. Sometimes grief looks like anger. Sometimes it looks like anxiety. So sadness can be a symptom of grief or sadness can be, you know, something altogether. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I can even think about sadness related to love, but I also think that love has to do with grief. I basically think everything is related to grief. Um, And and fear. uh, Yeah, fear plays a huge role in grief because grief is related to both loss and fear of loss. You know, what I was talking about with um, the ifs, like what if I lose this or lose this person um that's absolutely fueled by by fear um which i think is is related to grief and um, whenever i notice that i'm experiencing a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety um it's really important for me to check in uh to understand how that's related to grief for me personally Mm, gotcha um the past few years um to tell my own personal business, um, <laughs> I've been um, going through the, I guess, I'm getting better now, but like the uh, the, the circle of, of grief. Um, we lost my mother-in-law suddenly about three years ago. And I didn't realize how much, A, we aren't taught how to properly grieve somebody and we aren't giving the time to actually grieve somebody. Yes. Um, Think about at work, they give you maybe two weeks bereavement Mm -hmm. um, if you're lucky. And so my question for you is for those of us who are grieving people, what is the the expected time or the average time that it would take you to actually mourn their loss and to complete that grief cycle. And and to your point, you mentioned that, you know, um, it might look like anger and anxiety. So what are, what does grief look like generally speaking and how long does it take for us to move through those? Oh man. Um, You know, I would say that's, in my experience, there really isn't a grief cycle. I think of it more as the, like the infinity sign, you know, like you're, you're just circling back at different points in your life. And maybe the experiences of anger and overwhelming sadness become more like further apart. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe they become less overwhelming and intense with time, but there's always some, returning you know mm-hmm. to to that moment to that experience because if you're grieving something then it's had a profound impact on who you are and on your mm-hmm. life and, and that doesn't go away even if we're able to shift our life around the the hole that's left when that that person or that thing goes like there, there's just constant reinventing that we're called to do Um, whenever we grieve, but we always remember who we were and who those people were, where those places were and what those things were to us. Um, And as for society and and how long it takes, you know, this is a culture that doesn't know how to grieve because this is a society that doesn't know how to come to terms with its own actions and its own deeds, you know? Mm. Um, so acceptance um, 
acceptance is just not written into our cultural DNA. Um, And that is so necessary in order to understand grief and to really respect people's grieving processes. And it breaks my heart when I'm working with folks, specifically low-income folks who have no space whatsoever to grieve uh, profound losses. And even for myself, like even if I'm given more leeway because of my job and, and um, my options, it's still, like you said, two, what is two weeks? <laughs> you know, if, if something has impacted your entire life up until this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, yeah, I mean, as a, as a society, we have a lot of work to do. Isn't she insightful? And as you know, one of my self-care practices is music. So today's song of the day is by the brilliant, the wonderful, the amazing Frank Ocean, and it is called We All Try. And you already know the drill. If you haven't subscribed, please do so. And if you haven't left a rating or a review, please do so. While you're here, take a screenshot while you're listening and share on social media tagging uh, BeWellSis underscore podcast so I can reshare. Now let's get back to the show. And you mentioned earlier, we just, we um, didn't touch on it, about how grieving can show up in our sex life. Uh-huh. How? <laughs> I'm curious. <laughs> um, let me think of an example without putting my business out there too much. <laughs> uh, last thing I would need is for my mama or somebody <laughs> in the Carolinas to listen to this. I'm like, let me back this up. Um, so um, grief and sex. So because grief is so intimate and it shows up in our intimate relationships with other people and in our intimate relationships with ourselves. There's often so much that we carry from one relationship to the other um, that we don't even realize we're carrying. Um, whether that is um, shame related to our body or shame related to our sexual desire or shame um and, and fear of not being fully accepted um, because we're too much or or not enough, all of that is related to grief. And I, I think about the work that I sp- I focus on spe- on specifically um, is those experiences with Black women um, who experience various forms of misogyny and and racism and, and colorism. Um, and what that looks like in our romantic relationships. And then how does that impact our sex lives and our ability to experience pleasure and love in a body that has been told it is unlovable or a body that's been made to feel invisible or a body that, um, you know, has experienced various forms of violence, whether it's it's, it's physical violence or um, uh, just 
the violence that comes with, with microaggressions and what people just throw onto you, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. And, and all of that shows up in, in our, in our sex lives and our relationships to people who we want to expect, uh, who we want to accept us fully and who we want to love us, love us and hold us. So, yeah. So do you feel that when we go through certain experiences and certain traumas and microaggressions, we are either not giving ourselves the appropriate time and space to grieve those things and we move into another relationship or we are grieving as we move into another relationship. Both. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, I think most of the time people have no idea that they're grieving, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So even if there's space between those relationships, if you you can't accept what you're unaware of and you can't work to heal what you can't recognize. And because our society has such a fraught relationship with grief, most people aren't even able to place their finger on what's happening um, in order to address it. Um, So then they move from one relationship where maybe there were bad boundaries or maybe it was codependent um, or maybe the person was avoidant and, and, uh, or the person, you know, the per- I want to use myself as an example. Like maybe I was dating someone who was avoidant and, um, you know, I leave that relationship with this feeling that I'm, I'm too much or I have to hold back what I'm really feeling and, and, um, what I'm, what I really mean or, you know, um, how often I want to communicate and then I hop into a relationship or not even hop in, you know, maybe two years Mm -hmm. later I get into a relationship and I still carry those patterns and those feelings. Mm -hmm. So then it would just be a barrier to, to real intimacy with your new partner. Absolutely. And then I recreate um, that same situation that feeds into the narrative that I already have. You know, I already have this narrative, this, this belief that I'm too much and I overwhelm people and um, I'm hard to handle in a relationship. So let me hold back. And um, instead of taking the risking rejection um, by opening myself up to what I really want, um, and the type of love that I, I know that I really need, you know, let me preemptively take action to prevent myself um, from being too much, lest I run this person away. And, you know, it's driven by the desire that all of us, we're social creatures. We need to be loved. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And yeah. And that like plays into not only the intimacy, but the vulnerability. And mm-hmm. it's just, yeah, a cycle. And as I'm speaking to you, I am realizing that I did not understand like the real meaning of grief and to your point, how it permeates just every, every aspect of life. Um, one thing I also want to touch on is at the beginning of the year, um, back in January, when uh, Kobe Bryant passed away. Mm-hmm. It was something that I like the feeling um, of the community of the nation. Um, like we all felt that. And firstly, I'm not even like a, a sports fan like that, but I was like impacted more than I thought I would be impacted. Um, I felt like as a community, um, we were impacted. 
is there like a term for that? And what is it about us as like humans that makes us grieve somebody that we really didn't even know? Oh, I have all kinds of things to say about this. <laughs> yes, let's talk. <laughs> Girl, I, I had I had a very visceral and strong reaction to Kobe's death and Chadwick's for different reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um and it, it's because, you know, their lives mattered. You know, they mm-hmm. they shaped us in some type of way. So we don't just like we don't have to have had an experience of loss to grieve or, you know, to know or be able to imagine what it's like to lose that thing. We don't have to, to know these people directly. It's kind of like the way I think of empathy is empathy is based less on understanding and more on imagination. Like I think that a lot of people think that in order to have empathy, you have to be able to walk in someone else's shoes or understand what they're going through. But the fact of the matter is there are always going to be experiences that we don't understand and that's okay. Like I don't need to Mm -hmm. be able to understand what it's like um, to be, I don't know, um, affected or human yeah or, or like, like to compassionate. be compassionate yeah to be trans to be um what, okay disabled. yes like yes. these experiences mm-hmm. i don't need to know what it, it's like to have these experiences and, and understand them but i can imagine and that's where my empathy comes from just being human enough to what to recognize the humanity of someone else such that i can imagine what that suffering might be like so So with Kobe, um, I had a hard time because I was grieving this loss and I'm not a sports fan either. Um, I couldn't even remember what (laughs) team he played on. I was like, was it the Bulls? What? Um, But it was complicated for me as a woman. And I, I find myself as a black woman in particular constantly caught in this crossfire between femininity and blackness just because of how you know identities or identity politics work and Mm -hmm. I thought about those accusations um towards Kobe from that woman years ago and that as a woman I'm I'm in the midst of this grief and that stuck with me and that made his death complicated for me. Mm-hmm. And for me, it wasn't a matter of whether or not he did it as much as it was a matter of how he handled it when he was alive and that mattered. And because his life mattered to so many of us, which is why we were impacted, it would make sense that this pivotal moment in his life also mattered and made my grief complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, such that, yeah, I love Kobe, but also I feel a way because whether or not he did it isn't as important as recognizing that he comes from a community in which Black women experience the type of violence that he was accused of to a profound degree. Mm. And the way, like, I, I think like 60% of Black girls experience sexual violence before the age of 18, right? 60? So I'm like, 60. My God. So I'm like, you're coming from a community and you have an identity as a man where the way that you handled this situation truly mattered regardless of how you did it. And regardless of 
whether or not you did it. And it was a moment in which I wish he could have demonstrated for the community what it's like to be accountable and reflective and thoughtful around such a powerful issue that affects so many Black women. Um, And I was really disappointed when he didn't. So when he died, my grief was mixed with sadness and anger and disappointment and emptiness because all of those things are a part of grief and it was messy. Um, and then so many other people online, because I, I know folks were talking past each other, like when folks are grieving, they're bound to trigger other grieving folks. Like that's just what happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. no one has a, a monopoly or a, a final say on the appropriate way to yeah. um, express grief unless you're actually causing harm to someone else. But um, yeah, I mean, there were people who had mixed feelings. I was one of them. Um, mm-hmm. And there are people who have pretty straightforward feelings, like he was an idol. And all of those are very um, legitimate responses. And it's just, yeah, it was tricky and messy. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's perfect. Right. Um, a lot, I don't know anybody personally who's been, um, accused of such a serious act, but people, people have hurt people. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so I always, when somebody in, close to me or in my in my close circle or in my circle or my life, I should say, um, passes, it's always tricky the response to them. I always feel like, in my experience, the person automatically becomes a saint when they die, no matter how yep. they were living when they're here. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yes, um, I, I don't know. I don't like. I don't know if that's like part of human nature to just, for whatever reason, just take only the good and run with that when they pass. In a way, it could cause like trauma to to the survivors, you know, who've been on the receiving end of their not so great behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's complicated. It's so so I- complicated. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you giving that example um, because when you were saying that and when you were asking that question, I was thinking, I think it says a lot about the way that we think of our own worthiness to be loved or to be anything, you mm-hmm. know, like in order, in order to truly be a hero, in order to truly be worthy of unconditional love, then you have to be perfect. Um, and if I say I love this person or if I, if I miss this person, I'm grieving this person. I love this person. If I love this person, then I can only think or talk about the good that their life brought when, you know, love and life are messy as hell. Yeah. And, and we have a hard time even accepting that in our relationships with each other when we're living, like, you know, Frequently, it's it's either all good or bad, and we have a hard time accepting the bad in ourselves because we don't want to be a quote unquote bad person. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's like, no, you're just you're a person, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And I felt the same about Kobe. I'm like, I still miss him, and I can also say I was really disappointed by that. 
or mm-hmm. you know with with Bill Cosby it's like dang like I I was watching Moesha yesterday and they um you know did a little tribute to the Cosby show I'm like dang I love the Cosby show and Bill Cosby <laughs> was great <laughs> and also like I, yes like that's not okay <laughs> so right. so like both of them can exist and we can we can make space for that but it's not something we're readily taught, you know? This was really good. So thought-provoking. I have so much to think about. Okay, so before we wrap up, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask everyone. Uh-huh. So what is a book that you would recommend? I have a book coming out called Grieving While Black, um, an anti-racist mm-hmm. take on oppression and sorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so it looks at um, racism as a result of our... Um, inexplicable relationship to to loss and the grief um, and racism in all forms of oppression, quite frankly. Um, mm-hmm. Where does the, the need to oppress uh, other people arise and, and why does it occur um, mm-hmm. both now and, and throughout history? Because I think you know, a lot of times you look at what's happening now as uh, something that's unique. But if you look at you know, human history, this has been something that's just been occurring throughout, you know, for centuries. So what is it that that keeps making gender inequality or racial inequality um, a thing? So my my goal was to get to the root of what causes it and inspire people to actually address the root as opposed to addressing um, the symptoms um, and, and the surface things. All of those things need work, too. <laughs> like white supremacy need to we need to talk about it yes. uh, but, but what is it that that causes people to to go into those modes and perpetuate that type of violence oh beautiful um thank you so much for your time for your conversation for your thought this was really really good super insightful thank you thank you uh thank you for inviting me and thank you for the questions you asked and for uh being honest and vulnerable Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Be Well Sis podcast. For more information on anything discussed in this episode, please see the show notes and or visit www.bewellsispodcast.com. Oh, and don't forget to leave a five-star rating on Apple. Until next time, Be Well Sis. You've lost our faith, but you must believe